Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, it's good to be here with you. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 6. We're going to be in Matthew 6. I'm going to have you jump around a little bit uh, this morning, but Matthew 6 is going to be the place where we're going to start. And um, just want to welcome you to church. If you're new here, my name is Calvin. I'm one of the pastors here. So uh, privileged to hang out with you uh, this weekend. And uh, we are in a series that's called Christian Worldview. And uh, if you haven't um, been able to kind of hang with us this series, I would encourage you to go back on our website and watch over these messages. They all kind of build on each other. But we are about six or seven weeks into this series trying to just kind of establish what what does it mean to view the world through the lens of Christianity? And we started with kind of the foundational. Now we're moving into the practical. Last week, we talked about a Christian worldview on sexuality. And uh, this week, we are going to talk about a Christian perspective, a Christian worldview when it comes to money. And uh, what I want to do is I want to start a little bit different this morning. Um, how many of you are like me where very, very easy, and I'm not sure if this is wisdom or if I'm just a pessimist, but how many of you, when it comes to things that are unknown, quickly run to like the worst case scenario? How many of you are like that? I just, my brain tends to quickly go worse. Be, be, be bold, okay, come on. I'm not gonna call you up. I'm not gonna do anything worst case scenario, right? Um, a bunch of us are, and um, I, I am wired that way. And I joke with my staff often where I'm like, the worst thing that you can do to me is just say, hey, Cal, I wanna meet with you and not give me any reason why you wanna meet. Like, I hate that because it's like, oh my goodness, what happened? And my brain goes to all of these different worst case scenarios. So like Marty and Chris and some of the guys that have worked with me for a long time, they know me well enough to like, hey, Cal, can we meet? Here's what it's about. And I'm like, okay, thank you. That's loving me. I feel so much better now. Like, I'm okay with bad news as long as I know bad news coming. What I hate is the unknown. So what I want to do is, is if you're like me, this is a game that you're going to be really good at. We're going to play a game together. Here's what I want you to do. If you're taking notes, if you have a pen out, I want you to, to get it ready. Or if you're taking notes on your phone, go into your notes app. I want you to write something down. Here's what I want you to write down. What, the, again, this is really important. This has to be like the first thing that pops in your head. Be honest. I'm going to ask you a question. The first thing that comes into your mind, I want you to write down. Here's what I want you to, want you to write down. What is the one thing in your life that if you lost it would hurt you the most? All right, don't want you to think too much. I just want you to write it down. What is the thing in your life that if you lost it, it would hurt you the most? We got it? When you're done, give me a thumbs up so I know we can keep moving on. Okay, we're gonna get back to that in a minute. But uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about money. And uh, money is such an overwhelming and dominating reality in our lives, isn't it? Like there's nothing we can do to escape the reality of money. Um, most of us, we spend half of our waking hours during the week working to earn money, which is amazing to think about. Over half of our waking lives is spent in the pursuit of providing for ourselves and our families and making money. And um, on top of that, we have taxes, we have mortgages, we have budgets, bills, car payments, school payments. We gotta worry about the economy. We're getting into holiday spending season, um, which is terrifying. All sorts of subscriptions, groceries, any trip or vacation centers around money. It is something that you can't run from and escape. And actually, there's this kind of new movement that's um, cropped up over the last five or 10 years where younger people are, are, are starting to ask the question like, do I really have to live in this reality? 
And can, can I create an existence that's disconnected from money? And, and they do this in two ways. The first way they pursue kind of disconnecting from this reality is they go virtual. And, and what you're seeing is, is people are spending more and more time immersed in video games because it's, it's escape from the reality and the grind of life, tons and tons of hours consuming with trying to escape the reality of the world we live in. And then the other is kind of the other extreme of the pendulum. More and more people are attempting to live off the grid. Do you know what that means? Where it's like, I just want like a small log cabin in the woods somewhere in the UP and like I'll make all my own water and I'll hunt animals and like, can I live in a way that's just disconnected from how interwoven our economy is, um, it's really, really difficult to get away from. And uh, here's what I would argue. Money has always been a dominating factor of life, even during the time of Christ. Um, Jesus taught in parables. So he would tell stories that were analogies. And he taught somewhere between like around 40 parables that are recorded in the gospels. And in about one third of those, the story he would tell or the analogy that he would use would be about money, right? Why did Jesus talk about money so often? Because when you're teaching something, you want to use analogies that can connect to everyone. And here's the reality. When I take my wallet out and when I pull out a $50 bill, Everyone in here knows the value of this, right? Like this catches everyone's attention. The reason Jesus talked about money so much is because money is something that connects all people. Well, what I wanna to do today is I wanna look at a passage where Jesus teaches directly on money. Look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. He says this. He says, do not lay... Up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in this passage, Jesus is warning us not to put our hope in the treasures of earth because these things don't last. Moth and rust destroy, thieves can break in and steal. And he's saying, listen, there's a greater treasure to live for than the things of this earth. But he ends it, look at verse 21 again. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ultimately, Jesus is most concerned where where do our hearts find their hope and rest is it in God or is it in money? Where are we placing our hope? And here's the big idea this morning. It's this. In a Christian worldview, money is the test. It's not the treasure. In a Christian worldview, money is the test. It's not the treasure. And just like we've been doing every week, what I want to do is I want to take a moment and I want to talk about how our culture views money. What is secular humanism's view of money? So before we continue in God's word, I just kind of want to lay out, this is what our culture thinks when it comes to money. And I would argue that our culture views money in three different ways. Here's the first. Um, money or my wealth is my identity. In our culture, we place our value as people and our identity in how much we have, what stuff we have, or how much we make. And that is everything from shoes to clothes to houses to cottages to trucks, etc. All of it is a status thing. And maybe, and again, this is another trend we see with young people, but I think for the older generation, um, when it came to wealth, it's how much can I accumulate? 
What's my bottom line? How much am I making? Do I have a house? Do I have a cottage? Can, can I accumulate stuff? For the younger generation, they're not wired in the same way. What they're wired more is, is what experiences can I have? Right? I want to go to Italy. I want to go to France. I want to go on these vacations, and I want to post the pictures on Instagram, and that's what I value. Well, money is the center of both of those things because you need money to have the experiences, but it's all a status thing. Um, do you know who the two richest men in the world are? Anyone have an idea? Bill Gates and Elon Musk. I heard you're halfway there, okay? Um, Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world. Um, number two is Jeff Bezos, the, the owner of Amazon, all right? So these are the two guys. Um, Jeff Bezos, um, he is worth $198 billion, roughly, and Elon Musk is about $210 billion. And um, just to help you guys understand the kind of wealth these guys have, um, I looked up how many countries in the world there are. There's about 195 countries in the world. And I looked up all the GDPs of all of the countries. These guys individually have more than about 140 countries in the world, right? They would rank in the top 55 by themselves in the richest countries. This is how much money they have. And here's what's interesting. I don't know if you guys saw this story. Um, a couple weeks ago, Jeff Bezos, on his, on his Twitter account, he posted an article just talking about how great Amazon was as a place to work at and how well Amazon was doing. And uh, Elon Musk, he must follow Jeff Bezos on Twitter because he saw the article and he commented on the article. So the richest man in the world commented on a Twitter post by the second richest man in the world, and that comment was simply a silver medal emoji. It was just basically saying, hey, you're still number two, right? So you've got these two men who are worth more than what most countries could ever dream about owning altogether, and they're in a tug of war, you know, making fun of each other's status thing, who has more? And there's honestly, there's part of me I respect it a little bit by Elon Musk, because at least he's honest about where he's placing his identity and his value. It's about being number one for him. Wealth is in identity, and it's not just the two wealthiest people in the world that are warring it out. It happens every day in millions of hearts around our country. Keeping up with the Joneses, right? Is enough ever enough? I've got to keep up the appearance. I've got to drive the right things. I've got to look the right way. I mean, think about it. Every commercial we watch, there's an identity play for our hearts, right? If you buy this shampoo, this is the type of person you'll become. If you buy this couch, this is how much better your life will be. It's all a identity status play. Here's the second way our culture views, it, views wealth. Um, my wealth is my security. My wealth is my security. In our culture, our money or our finances are the thing that's going to keep us safe and secure, right? There are billion-dollar industries geared towards making sure that we have financial security, right? And by the way, I think there's wisdom in that. I'm not out on that at all, but, but it's this idea of how do I retain my wealth? How, how, how do I make that wealth grow? This is the thing that's going to provide me security, have any of you ever had your identity stolen? Yeah, I have. It's not fun, is it? Right? Like, I've gotten that call from my bank before where it's like, hey, have you been making long-distance calls from Pakistan? It's like, nope. <laughs> and, like, there's that instant, like, panic feeling. 
Like, oh no, someone has my information and what could they do? What could they take? What could they steal? When your identity is stolen, you feel like your security is crumbling, right? And that's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 6 when he says, one of the problems about wealth is that thieves and robbers can break in and steal. We're never as secure as we believe we are when it comes to money, right? Think about it practically. Think about your work. Aren't we all just one decision away by someone else from losing our job? And that decision might not even have anything to do with us. It could be completely outside of our control. Uh, I learned this in a very, very real way in um, Orlando um, when I was a youth pastor there. My wife and I moved down there in 2008. And I think I've told this story before, but we moved to Orlando right when the housing bubble collapsed. And the greatest city in all of America that was affected the most was Orlando. And we would drive by the suburbs of Orlando and there would be massive housing developments that were just abandoned. The economy crashed, the market collapsed, people couldn't afford to build, people couldn't afford to buy, and companies and people and families and generational wealth wiped out in a six-month period. We're never secure as we think we are. Then here's the third way our our society looks at money. It's this. Um, It's my wealth is my hope. My wealth is my hope. My money, the things that my money can do for me quickly become the thing that I practically put my hope in, right? Have you ever heard the phrase, fake it till you make it, right? Like even if you don't have money, just pretend like you do till eventually you get there. Fake it till you make it. Well, the interesting thing about that phrase is, is what's the end goal? That we make it. That the idea of making it, of living a fulfilled life, of living a satisfied life, it has nothing to do with being a loving husband or wife or parent or friend or to live a life of integrity or to make a contribution to society. The goal of making it is simply the accumulation of money, to make as much money as we can. We live in a culture where making it and wealth are tied at the hip. All right, so here's what I want you to see, church. Look at how our culture views money. It's a source of identity, it's a source of security, it's a source of hope, right? Isn't it amazing that we as Christians, wouldn't we all argue that our identity, security, and hope ought to be found in a relationship with God, right? We would say that Jesus has given us an identity, that we have a security in what Christ has done for us and our hope is in the return of Christ and our eternity with God. And what I want you to see is, is when you remove God from the picture like secular humanism tries to do, there's still a problem that our hearts long for things like identity, security, and hope. They've just provided a different solution. Everyone understands there's these eternal longings in our soul for identity, security, and hope. And what secular humanism says is put it in this monetary value because there is no eternity. But in a Christian worldview, we look somewhere very different for these things. Okay, look at verse 24, and here's where Jesus gets very, very serious about when it comes to our hearts and money. It says this, he says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what he's saying is, is ultimately your heart is only going to worship one thing. And church, what you need to understand is money is morally neutral. It's not inherently good, it's not inherently bad. We see times in scripture with guys like Job and Solomon and David, where the Lord blesses these men for their obedience and faithfulness with earthly wealth. 
Money itself isn't bad. It is the putting your hope and worship and identity and security and serving money as your ultimate master. It will force you, cause you to reject God's place in your life. And by the way, it's all about who has your heart. Like there are people in my life who I know that have more money than they could ever want and their life is consumed by what they don't have and just wanting more. And I know people in my life who have very little and their life is consumed about what they don't have and wanting more and it's the complete opposite. I know people who have more than they could ever want and are generous and and their heart is um, serving the Lord and I know people with very little who are completely content and their heart is about serving the Lord. It's all about Where is your heart? If money takes the place of God in your life, it's because you've bought into the spirit of the age. Okay, so here's what I wanna do. I wanna wanna show you something. In the Christian worldview, you need to understand this. We have a treasure, and it's Jesus. The Christian worldview views the treasure not as wealth, but as Jesus himself. All right, look at verse 20 again. It says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus is encouraging us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Well, here's the thing, church. That's kind of confusing, right? But like, what does it mean to practically lay up treasures in heaven? What, what is these treasures in heaven that Jesus is talking about? So I kind of want to help clear this up for us because I think this can be confusing. So to help you understand this, I need you to turn over to Matthew 13. We're going to look at two parables Jesus tells back to back that shows us what he means by what these treasures in heaven are. Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus tells a parable. Look what he says. He says, And the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So he says, this kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure that someone finds and they find it and it's so valuable that they happily sell everything else in their life to go buy the land so they can have the treasure. And look how he follows it up with, look look right at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is this treasure that's so valuable that we would gladly give away everything else in order to possess this one thing. So the question is, is what is the treasure? What is the treasure of great price? What is the pearl of great value? What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the key to understanding this is Matthew 4, 17. And after Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness for 30 days. And he fasted and prayed and was tempted by Satan. And after that, Jesus began his ministry. And do you know how Jesus began his ministry? The first thing he taught, even before the Sermon on the Mount, said this in Matthew 4, 17. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is this great treasure and this great pearl that you give up everything else for. And then in Matthew 4, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was at hand, church? Jesus was. Jesus was here. He was beginning his ministry. When Jesus is referring to this treasure, this pearl, this kingdom of heaven, he's referring to himself. 
He's saying, I am the treasure that is worth more than anything else this world could offer. Okay, remember the game we started with at the beginning? What is the one thing that if you lost it, it would devastate you the most? Right, what I'm really asking you is, is what do you treasure most? So here's my question. Did you write down Jesus? Or did your mind go to a loved one? Did your mind go to a job? Did your mind go to a house? Like, and what I've been convicted so much is, is that, listen, in a Christian worldview, what it says is all of us in here possess the greatest treasure in the history of the world. We have Jesus. You have to remember, the goal of Christianity is not that someday we will go to heaven. The prize of Christianity is we get a relationship with God right now. We are part of the kingdom of heaven today because we have Christ. And I just was so convicted this week that, man, when I think about the things that matter most, I think so often I don't treasure Jesus enough. But here's the truth. He is the greatest treasure. One of the things about ministry is that oftentimes we meet with people after just great tragedy or after really, really bad news. And I've sat with people who have just lost a wife. I've sat with people after they've gotten a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. I've sat with people in really, really difficult situations. And here's what's so amazing in those times for followers of Christ. The fact that Jesus is the treasure is so clear in those moments. Like when I meet with someone who just lost a spouse, what they say is, is man, it's been really difficult, but it's okay because I'm loaded. That's not what they say. They're like, yeah, man, I, I, this would be really difficult if I didn't have so much money. No, they say, man, if I didn't have the Lord, I don't know what I would do. But God has shown up and he's been near to me, right? I've dealt with people with terminal diagnosis. And what they say is, is I'm not putting my hope in what my bank account says. I'm putting my hope in what God promises, that to be absent from here is to be present with God and I am stepping in to glory. And that's what Jesus is saying, is saying our earthly things will rust away. We can't take it with us. The treasure that we have is a treasure that lasts into eternity and that is God himself, right? And, and I just like, think about it this way. Like this is what's so beautiful about corporate worship. We have a room full of people here that have different backgrounds, that have different genders, that are different races, that are in different stages of life and, and have different socioeconomic statuses. And we all come together and what we do in corporate worship is we're saying, Jesus, you're the treasure. You're the thing that unites us. You're the thing that is the greatest value. And, and even though I don't know everyone in this room and even though I'm not close with everyone in, in this room, but I am united as a family because you are so valuable. That's what we do. And my question is, is how would your worship change if you truly treasured Jesus above all things? Right, that's what Christian community's for. Then we gather together during the week and we're gathered together with people who treasure Jesus. So we pray for each other and encourage each other and challenge each other to live like that is our reality. Christianity is not about what you believe or who you follow. It's about who you treasure. Okay, here's the next thing I want to show you. I wanna show you two men with two treasures and their two responses. Do me a favor, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me over to Matthew 19. We're gonna see a very, very clear example of Jesus encountering two men who had very different treasures. The first is this. It's the story of a, of a rich young ruler. It says this in Matthew 19, 16. 
It says, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, talking about Jesus, said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all of these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions, right? So you've got this young man who, who is a, in a position of power and status and of wealth. And he goes to Jesus and he's like, I can sense in my heart, I don't have what I need most. He goes, what else do I need? And Jesus, what he's doing is he's saying, where is your heart? He's saying, if you truly wanna take eternal life, go sell what you have, come follow me, you'll, you'll inherit eternal life. The guy couldn't do it. He walks away from Jesus sorrowful because he had great possessions. His heart, his security, identity, and hope, he wouldn't place it in Jesus. He was placing it in what he had. All right, I wanna compare that to Zacchaeus, another man we meet in scripture. It'll be on the screen. You don't need to turn there in Luke 19. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a man who lived his entire life. His identity, hope, and security was in how much money he could make. So much so that when Rome conquered Israel, he turned and worked for the Romans and took money from his own people to give to Rome. And on top of that, he would steal from his own people to make more money for himself. But then he meets Jesus and Jesus comes over and has dinner with him. And at the end of that dinner, it says this, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Do you see the difference in these two men? Both were wealthy. Both had put their identity and their hope in their finances, but when they met Jesus, Zacchaeus found the treasure of great price. And his heart was turned from one of greed to generosity. And he's like, it's no longer about accumulating wealth to myself, but I wanna be honest and I wanna have integrity and I'm gonna pay back the people that I stole from and I'm gonna take half of what, what God's given me and I'm going to give that away. And my heart is completely 180 degrees transformed. Zacchaeus found a better hope. And what I love about this is Jesus never demanded that of him. Zacchaeus joyfully and willingly did it because he found a greater hope than money could ever provide. And church, here's what I want you to see. Ultimately, money is a test. Money is a test of the heart. Your wallet is a test. That's all it is. Go to the next slide. It's a test of a lot of things. Um, money is a test of your worship. Who comes first in your life? Who do you worship? You know, in the Old Testament, Jesus, when he had people give sacrifices, he would say, I want you to give me your first fruit. I want you to give me the things you collect first, and I want your best. Why did God ask for what was first? Do you think he needed it? Right? Is God lacking anything? No, it's not because he needed it, but what he wanted to establish in his people was this idea that, listen, everything we have is the Lord's. 
Everything we receive is a gift from God. And in our honor and worship, we're giving back saying, we're not just worshiping you with our mouth or with our minds, but we're worshiping you with the stuff you've given us. It was an act of worship to say, God, all of this is yours. You're in control, you're good. And I'm giving back out of joy and a heart of worship. Money is a test of your discipline, right? Do you live on less than you make? Or are you racking up debt in the pursuit of things you can't afford, right? I have kids and they're getting to the age where we're trying to teach them the value of money. And um, so we do chores or we give them little jobs to do and we'll pay them for it around the house. And uh, my twin daughters, they are penny pinchers. Right? They got the Dutch gene. They save and save and save. And so over the last you know, three or four years, they probably collected a few hundred dollars. And to them, like they're on Zillow looking for houses because they think they have so much money, right? But they're like, like, they just save it. Judah, we've given the same opportunity to and the same job to. I don't think he's ever even made it to $20 in his piggy bank, right? Because as soon as he can afford a toy, he's like, mom and dad, we got to go to Myers today. I got to get a toy. Right? I know I gotta teach that kid discipline and saving and, and not just spending. Can you live within a budget? Are you disciplined and content with what you have? It's a test of how we view ourselves. Are your things and are your, is your money, is it yours? Are you an owner or are you a steward? Or are these things the Lord's that we're called to steward for his glory and we're going to give an account to him someday? What do you believe about it? Do you hold on to it? Is it yours or do you view it as the Lord's? Are you an owner or a steward? It's a test of what matters to you. Show me how you spend your money and I'll tell you what matters to you, right? If you say that you have a heart to love other people, does your wallet back that up? It's easy to say things. When it costs you something, it shows us who we really value, what we really value, what really matters. Um, it's a test of your integrity. Are you honest in how you pursue money? Are you honest in your taxes at the end of the year or does every goldfish all of a sudden become a dependent on your tax return, right? In the way we pursue money, is it just do what we can by any means necessary? Or are we honest? Do we work and live with integrity? It's a test of your wisdom. Proverbs 12, 11 says this, it says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Do you know that one of the fastest growing industries in our economy right now is legalized sports betting? That that's kind of been legalized in all of these states throughout our country. And again, this is what's crazy to me. Everyone knows you can't beat Vegas, right? That the people who set the odds have got these supercomputers, they have more information than we could ever have, and yet millions and millions of people today will bet on football games because what they're saying is, man, how can I make money without having to work? That's the goal. That's the game. And it's like, we know it's a losing game. And yet casinos are filled up around the country all the time playing a game we know we're going to lose because there's the possibility we might win. It's a test of your contentment. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. 
See what Solomon's saying there? He's like, the problem is, is when you put your hope and your heart in money, enough will never be enough. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be content. You'll end up sending silver medal emojis to the second wealthiest man in the world, right? Your eyes will always be bigger than your stomach. Money isn't good, it isn't evil, but it's one of the few things in your life that either you own it or it will own you. It's a test of your heart. So here's what I wanna do as we wrap up our time this morning. I just wanna close with, with one more question when it comes to money and how we should think about it. What is the goal of wealth and money? Here's the goal according to a Christian worldview. It's generosity. When we think about the things the Lord has given us, the question that we should leave here with is my heart one of generosity. Psalm 37, 21 says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. See, he's contrasting the wicked who is, I wanna consume, 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 but he says the righteous is generous and gives. I heard a pastor this week say it this way. He says that one of the best evidences that the spirit of God dwells in you is if you can live with self-control sexually and are generous with your money because both of those things point to someone who is living for something that's greater than the moment. If we live with self-control with our bodies and are generous with our money, what it's saying is, is our hope is in something that's greater than today, that we are living for an eternal future. So here's the question, why is generosity the goal, church? Here's why. Because when we're generous, we imitate God. Generous people imitate God. Here, here's what I mean. Think about all the ways God is generous, generous with us. God is generous with us in creation, right? The Genesis 1 says that God created this beautiful world. Then in the world, he created a garden with everything that man could possibly need, set man in the garden, and it was all for them, right? God was generous with us in giving us this world. God is generous with us in salvation, right? God is a God who gave of himself, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, creator of the world, came and walked this earth and willingly died to pay the penalty for our sin. And then they didn't stop there. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. So God gives us his son. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to be with us, to shepherd us, to guide us. They are giving and giving. And by the way, it doesn't stop there, but God is generous with us even today. Lamentations 3.22 says this, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So that means when you woke up this morning and breathed in your first breath and looked out and saw the beautiful sky, you are receiving the generosity of the new mercies of God. So when we are generous with others, when we view what we have, not as just our own, but as an opportunity to love and bless other people, we are living out our created purpose, being like the God who created us. And church, you need to hear this. Everything in our sinful nature fights against this. Everything right now in our hearts is trying to give us excuses of why we don't need to be generous. And this happens even at a young age. I was talking with my girls just last week. And again, remember, they're the, the Dutch gene. They save, save, save money. And they actually, they're 10 now. So they just kind of started their first babysitting gig. And what happens is, is on Sunday nights, they uh, babysit for my brother and his wife. They babysit their kids while they have small group. So um, I was talking with my girls about how babysitting was going. And I'm like, man, your guys are starting to make a lot of money. And they're like, oh yeah, we're crushing it, dad. And I was like, awesome. So you know what that means? I'm like, 
do you guys want to take me out to dinner some night? Like, wouldn't that be so fun if like you took me out on a date and paid for my dinner? And they looked at me horrified. Like, <laughs> how dare you suggest that we would pay for you with our own money? Like, we're never doing that. Okay, the real conversation. And I was like, okay, awesome. I love this deal. You never have to pay for me. I'll never pay for you. All right? Does that work? And they looked at me like, no. <laughs> like, you're going to keep paying for me and I'm not going to pay you. This is how the deal works, right? And it's like, but, but isn't that in so many ways how we view our relationship with God? God, you've given us everything, yet I don't want to be generous with anyone. I'm not going to give back to you. I'm not going to be generous with others. And, and, and I'm just saying it is in our sin nature to say, no, this is mine. I'm putting my identity and my hope in security, and I'm just going to hold on to it with a vice grip. So I told my girls they were sinners, and the conversation was awesome. <laughs> so I get very few moments with my girls because they're so good that I take advantage of them. Um, here's the next thing we see. The reason the goal is generosity is that generosity has the best return on investment. Generosity has the best return on investment. Um, in um, Luke 16, I'm not going to have you turn there. Um, Jesus tells my favorite story of his. He tells this parable of a, the dishonest manager. It's not one of the most popular ones. Many of you may not have heard it, but he tells this story. And here's how the story goes. There's a guy, he's a property manager kind of, and he's got a, an owner, he's got a boss. And he finds out that his boss is about to fire him. So this property manager is like, oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to provide? Like, I'm about to get fired. So he comes up with this idea and he goes to all of the people who owe his master or his owner money and he settles their debts and gives them discounts. So if someone owed a hundred, he's like, just pay me back for 80. All right, just pay for 80 and I'll settle the debt. And if someone owed 50, hey, just pay 35 and I'll settle the debt. So what he did was is kind of without his owner knowing it, he gave discounts to all of his owner's debtors, settled those debts, gave the money back to the owner before he got fired. And he's actually commended for it. They're like, man, I don't like that you did that. That was really smart. And here's why the manager did it. Because he was like, well, I'm about to get fired, but if I can make friends with all of my owner's debtors, one of them will take me in once I'm fired. One of them will have me work for them. One of them will provide for me. He was like, I've got to use my position to make as many friends as possible because my position is going away. Okay, and here's the point Jesus makes in verse nine. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails that, you may, that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, so here's what Jesus is saying. And that word unrighteous wealth, it doesn't mean like make money like by robbing people or, or in ways that are sketchy. That word unrighteous, a better translation is worldly. And what he's talking about is this money that's going to fail. So he goes, use the money that you have that doesn't last, that is going to fail to make friends that will embrace you into eternity. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, have a mind towards the eternal, that I can't take my money with me, but I can be generous and be a blessing to others, and I can be generous with Jeff Stuck over there, and then when we're hanging out in heaven in three million years, we're going to be buddies, and he's going to like me because I use what God gave me now and made a friend with what he gave me, right? Stingy people are often lonely people. Generous people tend to have friends, and God's saying, have a view towards your money that it's something you steward to love and bless the people you're going to hang out with eternity in. It's a better return on investment. 
Okay, and here's the last thing. I want to close with this, is that generosity is a heart position, not a destination. Generosity is a heart position. It's not a destination. And every time I preach on money, I have the same conversation with people, and it's usually with younger people. I'll have someone come up to me, and they're like, man, Cal, I'm really convicted about this generosity thing, and I want to be a generous person. I just need to make more money, then I'll be generous, right? Like, just give me like, can I be like selfish and not be generous for like the next seven years? Then I'll make it, and then I want to be generous and be a blessing and tithe and do all of these things. And what I remind them is, is listen, God is a God who cares about the process, And don't believe the lie that like all of a sudden generosity becomes easy once you reach a certain level. It's about where does your heart live? And listen, if you have very, very little, maybe it starts with, man, I'm going to put aside enough money away to take one person out for coffee this week. Right, I'm gonna put $4 aside. We're gonna go to Starbucks. We're gonna drink burnt coffee. And I just wanna be a blessing and generous and sit and talk with someone. Start small, but the goal is that we view our lives and ourselves as people who steward what God has given us. Our identity, hope, and security are so tightly rooted to Christ that our worst case scenario isn't a financial scenario at all. Our worst case scenario is, man, what if I didn't have Jesus? And since I have that pearl of great value, since I have that treasure of great price, everything else I have is just icing on the cake and I'm going to use that to love and serve and be a blessing to those around me. That is a worldview that is so starkly in contrast to the world that we live in that if we live that way, we won't be able to help but being a light for Christ, amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you for uh, this church. God, I thank you for really clear instruction on such a practical issue. And God, I just pray right now that we would have the humility to really wrestle in our hearts and say, God, do we treasure you most? Is Jesus our greatest treasure? That's the first question we need to wrestle with, God. Would you help us answer that honestly? And then, God, would you give us the humility to ask the tough questions like, are we generous? We want to serve you. We want to love you. Would you help us in this? Would you give us very clear opportunity to be generous even this week? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.